The sermon text today is Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us in this moment to see Jesus more clearly and in his light to see ourselves more clearly, to break through our self-deceptions and delight us with your goodness that we might follow and obey Jesus in righteousness and joy. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. What does it look like when someone is hiding from God? What does it sound like when someone is rebelling against God? Now, most of us will likely instinctively answer that rebellion looks like obvious, outward, extreme, habitual, moral violation. That resistance sounds like an angry voice expressing hatred and unbelief toward God. That hiding from God means staying away from the church, committing to your own version of the truth, and chasing every wild desire of your heart. Sure, those are obvious ways to reject God, but rebellion can also look like a life of painstaking obedience. Resistance can sound like a sweet voice singing a hymn about God's love. And sometimes the most effective place to hide from God is right here. Surrounded by a community of people professing our devotion to the Lord. There are religious ways of running from God. Spiritualized strategies for rebelling against his authoritative claim over your life. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus warns his followers about resisting God, when he warns them about ways of living that dishonor the king, he doesn't talk about the obvious, irreligious debauchery of the world. He takes aim at the far more subtle, far more deceptive, far more dangerous tactics of religious rebellion. The ways of rejecting God that look like spiritual commitment and moral obedience. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain and announces the blessings of the kingdom of God. As we saw a few weeks ago, he recycles the language of the prophets. Isaiah 61, 
to proclaim that in him all God's promises are coming true. The exile is ending. A new exodus is coming. The king has arrived, and he is going to lead his weary, waiting people back into the life-giving presence of God for which they were made. And then in light of this good news, Jesus calls his disciples to live as salt and light. There to be salt different from the rest of the world, yet bringing out the beauty of creation. There to be light, a city on a hill, lit up with the glory of God like the temple on Mount Zion and drawing a glory-starved world to Jesus. In a word, Jesus wants his disciples to live in righteousness. Righteousness. Showing the world the distinct yet beautiful, the strange yet abundant life of joyful love in the kingdom of God. And then in verses 17 through 20, Jesus warns his disciples about the temptations that can damper their saltiness and dim their light. The dangers that can impede and corrupt their righteous witness to his kingdom. And it's not the outright rebellion of irreligious immorality. It's the quiet defection of religious rebellion. The ironic and crafty ways that you and I can use Jesus to run from Jesus. Jesus pinpoints two ways that we can make respectable religion a practice of unrighteous resistance. But he also gives us the good news that can make us beacons of righteousness and beauty in the world. So the first form of religious rebellion that we need to take a look at is self-indulgent religion. At its heart, self-indulgent religion says that Jesus loves me so much that he doesn't care how I live my life. That Jesus makes obedience to God obsolete. And this can take a variety of forms. Jesus came to obey God for you, so you don't need to obey God anymore. Jesus came to rescue you by grace, so you don't need to fight your sin and seek after righteousness. God gave laws in the Old Testament, but he gave love in Jesus, so the law is meaningless to you now. One popular preacher teaches that you need to unhitch your Christian faith from the Old Testament. And he says, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Why? Because Christianity is about following Jesus, not commandments. Now, at first, that might sound like it's making much of Jesus. It's focusing on grace. It's highlighting the radical, forgiving love of God in Christ. But there's only one problem. Jesus says it's completely wrong. He tells his disciples, do not think. Don't entertain the idea that I've come to abolish the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not a single dot will pass away from God's law until the story of history is complete. And anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least 
in my kingdom. Jesus knew that people would be tempted to believe that the good news of his gracious kingdom meant that they no longer needed to submit to God's word and walk according to his will. He saw it coming. And he confronted that idea head on in the strongest possible terms and declared that whoever does and teaches God's commands will be called great in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus calls his disciples to shine in the darkness with the radiance of obedient worship. And he points us to God's Old Testament commands as the place to discover what that obedient worship looks like. Relaxing the law and downplaying the pursuit of righteousness in the name of Jesus, in spite of its pious-sounding logic, is a religious form of rebellion against God. How so? It keeps you in control. Do you see that? It keeps you utterly in control. You get to maintain complete autonomy over your life and your worship under the guise of grace. You get to keep on giving your love, devoting your heart, your very self, to all the false gods of money, comfort, sex, power, success that dominate life in the world. You get to live as a cultural chameleon. Whenever your culture decides that something God forbids is good or something he commands is bad, you've got a built-in reason for living as if your culture is right and never risking the loss of their approval. It's self-indulgent religion that gives you license to keep losing yourself in your sin because God loves you so much he doesn't care whether you love him or not. Self-indulgent religion would have us believe that its vision of God's love is simply enormous. In Jesus, God loves us too much to tell us how to live. But that vision of God's love is actually way too small. What do I mean? That vision of God's love claims that he loves you enough to take care of the consequences of your sin, but he doesn't love you enough to call you into something better. You see, in the Bible, sin matters not simply because it is against God's rules. Sin matters because it will destroy you from the inside out. If you live your life searching for deep meaning, satisfaction, and joy in idols, in false gods, like pleasure or approval or wealth, you'll use people to get your idols. You'll hurt people who are obstacles to your idols, and somewhere along the way you'll find that the hole in your soul has only gotten wider. Because no idol can truly give you significance and make you whole. God gives you his law, not so that he can control your behavior. He gives you his law because he made the world and you. He knows how the world and you are designed to flourish. And he loves you enough to call you into a way of loving and living that will make you beautiful and deepen your joy as you bless others, 
Die to your own desires and delight yourself in him. Why does God command that you love him above everything else? Because devoting your life to anything less will leave you unfulfilled, miserable, and turned in on yourself. But finding your life in him will grant you a security that grounds your joy and unleashes you as a gift of beauty for other people. Why does God command you to tame your anger and walk in love? Because a life of rage and resentment will pick off your relationships one by one until there's no one left by your side. But a life of forgiveness and sacrifice will forge resilient bonds where you can experience the beauty and the safety of belonging. Why does God command you to exercise sexual self-control? Because God knows that sex is a powerful gift with powerful consequences. Pornography addiction, Serial adultery, casual sex will turn you into the kind of person who commodifies other human beings for your own pleasure and ends up even more empty than before. But faithfulness in marriage or singleness will make you someone who can truly honor others because you're not objectifying them all the time. Someone who can enjoy deep relationships of intimacy and fidelity because you're not exploiting them for your own selfish desires and leaving a trail of used up bodies behind you. Why does God command us to be a people of truth? Because lies break relationships and a community without trust cannot survive. But a family of integrity, a family of honesty, will have the confidence to keep on giving themselves to one another in vulnerability. They'll be able to build something beautiful and long-lasting together that a community of falsehood could never even dream of. Self-indulgent religion whispers the lie that God loves you too much to command you to change, but God loves you too much not to. He loves you too much to let you drown in your idolatry and the disintegration that it creates in your life and the lives of those around you. In Jesus, he has loved you enough to bring you into his kingdom, and he has loved you enough to call you into the way of life that you were made for, into the obedience and righteousness that are the pathway to human flourishing and joy into the worshipful witness that truly reflects the beauty of his kingdom and invites others to join in. Now there's an objection. Maybe it's in your mind. What about all those dietary laws? What about all those Israelite rituals in the law? Do those still apply to us? Now, recognize there are two ways of asking that question. One is one that's open to what the Bible actually has to say, and the other is a gotcha question, an objection that's just looking for a loophole so that we can keep running into our idolatry. Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament, and he explicitly teaches in Matthew's own gospel that the Old Testament purity laws are not abolished, but transformed because of his fulfilling work. Israel 
lived every day in a symbolic world of foods and practices and festivals and feasts that were designed to teach them through their bodies that sin pollutes us, that life in God's presence requires cleansing and renewal, and that those who are cleansed have been drawn out from the world to live distinct lives for the glory of God. And even those laws still teach and direct the church. We don't embody them in precisely the same way because Jesus has fulfilled the promise that they pointed to. But the Christian life is a perpetual movement from uncleanness to repentant purity and beauty in Jesus so that we might live in holiness before God's face, set apart from the world by the worship we offer and the God we glorify. The church doesn't bypass the law. Not even the ritual laws that seem so weird to modern people. In Jesus, the substance who fulfilled the shadows, we receive what the law is teaching us and walk in it in an even deeper way. But there's a second form of religious rebellion that Jesus warns against. And that's self-exalting religion. Self-indulgent religion uses God's love to run from God. But self-exalting religion uses God's law to run from God. Self-exalting religion is devoted to external, visible obedience to God as a way of securing status, superiority, and approval in the eyes of others. And it's what Jesus takes aim at in verse 20. He says, I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were the law experts who had a reputation for meticulously observing God's commands. But Jesus holds them up as a model for his disciples to avoid. Why? Because their apparent obedience was actually disobedience. Their external righteousness was actually a tragic unrighteousness. How does it happen? Throughout Matthew's gospel, we hear Jesus indicting the self-exalting religion of Israel's leaders. They do their deeds in order to be seen so that they can accumulate and maintain the public respectability and social capital as the reward of their piety. They live righteously in order to bring honor to themselves rather than to God, in order to elevate themselves over others rather than truly serving others. And in the process, their external obedience twists into a mask to cover up a wicked heart. Jesus says that they look pristine on the outside, but all that religious effort is feeding a heart of greed and self-indulgence. Greed to gain more and more from the people who see and applaud them. Self-indulgence that uses public goodness to feed a self-obsessed heart and satisfy all their selfish desires for power, glory, approval, success, and status. 
self-exalting religion with its performative righteousness that seeks the envy of others claims to honor the law. But it doesn't honor the law enough. Do you see that? The same way that self-indulgent religion claims to have a high view of love and it's got a low view of love. Self-exalting religion says, I've got a high view of the law. It's a low view of the law. It makes the law of righteousness a weapon for sin. Leveraging a life that looks like it's honoring God to honor myself. It turns the law of love into a way of dominating and oppressing other people. Alienating them under my supposed moral superiority and burdening them with the pressure to live up to my exacting standards. It hamstrings a law that would pierce the heart by only letting it go skin deep. Why? Because if you're measuring yourself by your ability to be good, you simply can't afford to let the law interrogate your internal life. That has to stay off limits. It's too messy. It's too ugly. It's too difficult to curate. If you let the law start hitting you at the level of your heart, at the level of your loves, at the level of your desires, the only course of action will be to give up on your project of moral projection and thrust yourself on the mercy of God because you have come to the end of your rope. And that is something that self-exalting religion cannot bear to consider. That's why their righteousness is unrighteousness. That's why their obedience is disobedience. Because they've used their life of seemingly sacrificial, morally praiseworthy religion as a way of manufacturing their own meaning and security apart from God and indulging in the very same idols as the sinners they despise. Do, do you hear that? Do you see what's going on there? Self-exalting religion and self-indulgent religion look so different on the outside, but they're exactly the same. Self-indulgent religion diminishes God's law to exalt the self and run after idols. And self-exalting religion embraces God's law for the very same reason, to exalt the self and to run after my idols. Those two types of people would consider one another as perfect examples of how religion can go wrong. But they're both chasing the same thing, just in different ways. The person who relaxes the law to fulfill their desires and the person who relies on the law to achieve the esteem of others are both still fundamentally self-oriented. And they're both using religion as a means of staying in control of their lives and independently chasing the false loves they believe will finally make them whole. They're both running from God and into themselves. Hear this. Self-exalting religion is not just hypocritical. It's not just unpleasant. It's deadly. Jesus says that self-exalting religion will keep you out of his kingdom. There is a kind of obedience to the law that flows from a heart that is rejecting God out of devotion to self. And Jesus tells us that the life of righteousness that marks his kingdom people 
abundantly exceeds the righteous-looking unrighteousness of self-exalting religion. One of the most common objections that I hear and that you probably hear to Christianity is that Christianity makes no difference in the lives of Christians. And for those that it does, they're unbearable. Christianity makes no difference in the lives of Christians, self-indulgent religion. And for those who are different, they're unbearable, self-exalting religion. You know what? Jesus had those objections first. And he preached them in the Sermon on the Mount because he calls us into something better. So we need to look at the righteousness of the kingdom. It may seem at this point that we're stuck between two impossible alternatives. Self-indulgence on the one hand, self-exaltation on the other. How can you honor and obey the law without making it the basis of your identity? How can you let the law claim your life without making the law the source of your life? How can you live righteously in front of others without living righteously for the praise of others? That's the question. Ultimately, the only way out of self-indulgence on one side and self-exaltation on the other is to get out of yourself. And I don't mean out of your personality. I mean out of the myopic selfishness that dominates life outside of Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus gives us good news with the power to do just that. In verse 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In that simple sentence, we hear simultaneously that our righteousness matters and that our righteousness isn't the part of us that matters the most. Jesus doesn't abolish the law. It still speaks to us, so we must obey. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, to answer its demands, so our obedience doesn't determine our status. And if you know that Jesus lived righteously on your behalf and died to take the judgment on unrighteousness that you've earned, You'll become the kind of person who can delight to follow God's law of love while resisting the temptation to measure your value by your obedience. You will become that kind of person. We could spend a lifetime unteasing that profound truth, but what Jesus is saying in verse 17 actually goes deeper than that. He doesn't just say, I came to fulfill the law. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's a way of talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. He didn't just fulfill the commands. Jesus fulfills the whole story of blessed hope that God had been writing with Israel from the dawn of creation. And we don't have to make educated guesses or get creative about how Jesus fulfills the story because over and over in his gospel, Matthew comes out and tells us the concrete ways that Jesus fulfills the patterns and hopes of the Old Testament. If you've read through the Gospel of Matthew, you know one of his favorite refrains, this was to fulfill what was written in the Scriptures. He's telling you the content 
of the hope that Jesus preached on the mountain. So what does he show us? Jesus comes into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. Just as Yahweh dwelt with his people in Eden and in the tabernacle and in the temple, Jesus has stepped into the world as the glory presence of God who makes it possible by his substitutionary life, cleansing death, and victorious resurrection for his people to live in the divine presence now and forever. Jesus is God's son, called out of Egypt just like Israel before him because Jesus leads his renewed Israel on a better exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of our slavery to sin and death so that we too can dwell with God on the mountain, not Sinai, not Zion, but the heavenly Zion, the heavenly mountain to which both of those mountains pointed. Jesus is the long-anticipated king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and who at his cross defeats the powers of darkness and washes you clean so that you can step by faith into an everlasting kingdom of love as a royal child whose glory will outstrip the angels. Jesus is the servant of the Lord who's led like a sheep to the slaughter at his cross and offers his life as the definitive sacrifice for sin so that you, washed once and for all by the blood of the Lamb, can enter without fear into the presence of a holy God and abide in his life-giving, soul-satisfying beauty forever, never looking back. And that just scratches the surface. Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. And he sweeps you up into a story that is better than the story you're trying to write for yourself. When you see that, it will cut the root of self-indulgence and self-exaltation in your heart. How? When you see that Jesus fulfills every last one of God's promises and plants you smack in the middle of them, the self-orientation at the heart of your religious rebellion can finally die. Because Jesus has already provided the security and status you spent your whole life searching for on your own. The self-indulgent use religion to baptize their idols so that they can keep on searching for joy apart from God. But Jesus restores you to the fountain of joy. The God who gives you security in his love Comfort in his arms, acceptance in his eyes, and glory in his kingdom. Who needs to look for life in counterfeit idols when you've got the real thing in God? The self-exalting use religion to achieve status in the eyes of others. But Jesus makes you a child of God, a priest in his presence, a temple for his glory, kings and queens in his kingdom. Who needs to prove themselves to human beings when you've already got a better, longer-lasting, more impenetrable status from God and in God? You don't have to use religion to underwrite your self-protective search for joy and status any longer. And when that happens, a different kind of life, a different kind of righteousness can begin to blossom. You can delight to obey God's commands, even when it's hard, 
even when it feels like death, because you know that the God who commands you is the God who died for you. That His law is a gift of His love. That the life of idol-killing worship that He beckons you into is the life of truest satisfaction that makes all your other searching obsolete. And rather than obeying to win the reward of affirmation from others, you'll obey because you've already received the reward of affirmation from God in Christ Jesus. Your righteousness won't be a performative charade to fill yourself up with the praise of other people. It'll be the abundant overflow of thanksgiving, deep humility, profound love that rejoices in offering your whole self to God because he offered his whole self for you in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the righteousness born of faith that marks out Jesus' disciples the heirs of the kingdom, and shows the world the beauty of life with God. And it's the righteousness that Jesus empowers at his table. In this meal, he proves to us all over again that we don't have to look anywhere else for joy. We don't have to manufacture our status. In Jesus, you're a royal child invited to the table of the king. You're an heir invited into the infinite satisfaction of life in communion with God. And filled up with Jesus, nourished by Jesus, strengthened by Jesus, we can take the first step of following him in love.